بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وصحبه ومواله وبعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته أهلا وسهلا ومرحبا بكم This is a uh, impromptu call it an impromptu live stream but it's not an impromptu discussion I intended for this discussion to take place as a recording um, but the timing was just so perfect that I thought, you know, I'd give everyone the honor of uh, meeting in person or sort of live in person, uh, Dr. Ihab Badir. Um, I feel like I'm speaking to one of, of my superheroes because Dr. Ihab Badir is, um, he's a astonishing figure and he's got an astonishing story to share with us, a heart-wrenching story to share with us. He's a husband, a father of three kids. He's a professional consultant in leadership and management. He's a physician and a pediatrician. He graduated from the University of Western Ontario as a specialist in newborns and premature babies in 2014. He's also a graduate of Harvard University in management and leadership. Dr. Ihab holds a bachelor degree in Sharia and Islamic studies from Egypt he lived in different places around the world, including the Middle East, Europe, and North America, in which he worked in the field of character building, personal and community development for more than 20 years. He is passionate about learning and teaching Islam as a methodology and a way of life. And as is obvious from the title of this discussion, he has spent 43 days in Gaza during this war. And uh, in his time there, he volunteered at the Ashifa hospital. So, subhanAllah, you know, we've been praying for them. We've been thinking about them. Our hearts have broken for them. And we have the chance to meet one of them. And we pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes us uh, benefit from this encounter. I would like to uh, officially introduce and call upon the screen Dr. Ihab Badr. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Dr. Ihab, ahlan wa sahlan bikum. I am deeply honored. Subhanallah, it is. Uh, yeah, subhanallah. I, I think I, I still need to find the words to kind of learn how to interact with you after what you've been through and what you're going to share with us this evening. Uh, after the introduction that I gave you, how else would you introduce yourself at this stage in your life, Dr. Ihab? Bismillah. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم جزاك الله خيرا for hosting me first and uh, it's my honor to be on this platform uh, to say to share uh, something from my experience to share the truth of what I have left over uh, 43 days in Gaza in the term of introduction uh, I, I guess جزاك الله خيرا uh, your introduction is comprehensive enough. All what I want to add, um, I, I, I feel I belong to this Ummah. Uh, I am originally from Asqalan, the city that was uh, occupied on 1948. We went to Gaza as refugees in a Shadi refugee camp, my father and my, my grandparents. Then I was born in Al-Ta'if. I lived in Al-Hijaz, in Riyadh. And I lived also in Amman, in Baghdad. Uh, 
this is when I had my medical school. I graduated in 2000 from Baghdad, and I had my internship in Gaza, my specialty in Jordan. I lived in Egypt, in Syria, in Turkey, in UAE, um, uh, in different other places and in, in the States and now in Canada. Uh, that's why I feel I am belong to this Ummah. And uh, uh, I'm not really originally from, from, from Asqalan. This is my original home, which I can't visit because of the situation of the occupation in Palestine. But Alhamdulillah, I have visited so many places of this Ummah other than the places that I lived in. SubhanAllah, so yourself uh, living as a refugee, um, what what was the, I don't know, where, where do we even begin, but what was it like being in Gaza for 43 days during this uh, heart-wrenching period, this incredible period of genocide and ethnic cleansing? You were right there. Uh, I can't even begin to imagine in the middle of one of the worst atrocities we've seen in this 21st century. In fact, I think it's safe to say the worst atrocity we've seen. And you were right there on the ground in the hospital with the people. What was life like? I, I, I think you are right. Um, I was there in the war of Gaza of 2008. And also I was there in Baghdad when it was uh, attacked. That was in, nine, in 1990 and 1996. And I was there because I mm. was graduated from Iraq, Baghdad. So this is where I, I had this experience. But really, what's going on in Gaza today, something I have never experienced. I have never seen. It is exceptional. It's totally different. Now, there is a huge difference between there is a war and you expect the other side to destroy governmental buildings and try to uh, to to destroy specific military fields and to occupy the land I, I understand this but what i don't understand when you feel you are the target as civilian when you feel as a doctor you are the target you have this feeling not out of nothing, just is out of the amount of cases I got to see at the hospital and I'm at my neighborhood and around me, of my relatives, of my friends who were killed. Most of them were civilians, like the vast majority. Uh, and most of them were kids and, and women. So if this is the case and you are in this situation, then you realize that this war is totally different than the previous ones. The previous ones, maybe you are at risk because you are beside of the of, of one of those governmental buildings or, or sites. You are at risk because you live beside one of the military sites. But you are at risk because you are a civilian. You are at risk because, because you are a kid and you live in Gaza. So this is something really uh, I have never experienced before. So your description is really, really pretty accurate, which is like, it's, it's to wipe out. This is what you feel like, wiping out, removing this from the map. And to have this experience when you live in there, it's pretty scary mm -hmm. because when you feel you are the target, so wherever you move, you are the target. You go to a school, you are the target. You go to a hospital, you are the target. 
you live in, in, in your house, in your apartment, in a residential tower, you are the target. You walk on the street, you are the target. You go to a supermarket or you, you go to buy like bread or something to eat and something to drink just to survive, you are the target. So this is really scary. Subhanallah, it is, uh, it's incredible. Um, you know, for us, it's almost, it's almost unreal because you start to think about the depth of the fear, the trauma, the, the horrible sounds and the blasts and the dust and the starvation and the thirst and the lack of medical supplies. And you just think of all of these different components and it becomes more and more unreal. Like we can't possibly fathom what people have experienced there, but you have, you have first-hand experience of what is taking place on the ground. What should we know about this? I, I think it is, it, is, it is good for the audience uh, to, to, to be involved in some details. So mm -hmm. they know uh, like uh, what is the real situation in there? So if I would summarize my, 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 uh, my duties there when I was in the war, uh, it would be divided into two, two types. The first one mm. is to take care of my parents, my family, basically. Uh, I was with my parents, my sister and my niece, and to take care of, 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 of the patients in the hospital and to check on my neighbors and my relatives, if possible, if they are in, in my area because using the cell phone wasn't really possible most of the time. So you need really to go and check on them in person. So for taking care of, of, of the family setup, you need to make sure that you have something to eat, something to drink. You need to survive until tomorrow, until the next days. I have my parents, they are old, they are sick. Uh, my father is almost 80 years old and my mother 76 years old, both they are sick, they have a chronic illnesses, heart illnesses, renal injury, renal failure and diabetes and they are on a bunch of medications. And you need really to provide them with, with, with the basic needs. Uh, by day three of the war, you could say we started to feel the, the lack of the basic needs. By day three of the war, we started to have more electricity very poor internet, if any, very poor cell phone coverage. We started to feel that the, the shortage of water and, and the food. And I still remember when I, 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 I went down frequent times down the street from our apartment to one of the schools of the UNRWA, uh, United Nations, because they have some, some electricity. So I go to stand in long lines to charge my, my, my cell phone, to charge my cell phone up to 20, 25, 30%. And once you have this charge, you keep it and you try to really not use it until it's necessary because you might need it for emergency, you never know. Uh, and this is just to, 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 to charge the cell phone and standing also on lines to get water and food. That was at, at, at the apartment of my parents. Then we had to flee the apartment because it was risky and dangerous. They destroyed the entire neighborhood. So we need really to move. We moved to the apartment of my sister beside Ashifa Hospital. And this is when I started to go there to Ashifa Hospital. That was by, by, by day six or day seven of starting the war. I can started. I, mm -hmm. Can I clarify um, 
for yourself, uh, you know, just to, so there may be some people who are watching and need some context as for what exactly is the Shifa hospital. Um, Ashifa was the hospital that the IDF claimed housed the military base, the main military base of Hamas. And uh, this was the hospital that they that they so brutally held hostage, basically, the entire hospital, along with its medical staff. This was the hospital that they force evacuated. This was the hospital that they left the premature babies to die. This is the hospital that we're speaking about, right? That's the Ashifa hospital, in case you didn't know. Uh, sorry, Dr. Ihab, please do, do continue. So before we go to Ashifa itself, so when I was there, getting water as, as something you need to get every day, this is my daily duty. We have a bottle of water or whatever the, 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 the thing that you need to bring with you to collect some water in. I have a bottle of water. I used to go every day to a spring of clean water. And if you know Gaza, we have a few of them. A few springs of clean water, one of them beside Ashifa. And this is when you go there, it's a daily task. You go, maybe hundreds or thousands of people, uh, they are gathered around the same spot, which is a very small one. And everyone is thirsty. Everyone has family. Everyone has, has kids. Maybe they are thirsty or seniors. So we all uh, go there with, with, with really uh, dire need, like we need to go. And mm. it is really under, 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 under the impression that you go there and you need to finish quickly because mm. you will be targeted. Because we've experienced that they targeted most of the springs of clean water. Most of them, they were targeted. And once we are a, cloud, a, a crowd over the same spot that maybe um, entice them more to, to, to target us. So we were hundreds. And we push like it is a severe, it's a struggle. Really, it's a struggle. You will be pushed from the right side, from the left side, and you go. You know what is the situation when we see the black stone in, in Mecca? Like it is, it is like it and even more difficult. And mm. after one hour or two hours, you find yourself inside, maybe at the spot after lots of pushing, and you need just to hold your your, your hands uh, around the bottle so you make sure that you have some water coming inside the bottle so once you finish you withdraw yourself you go back so if you are successful you go back with with the bottle that's full and this is the amount that we divide between my father my mother myself my sister my niece to survive until tomorrow and if i open the door and they look at my hands and they see them empty uh, that means we need to hold or today there is no water tomorrow is a new mission yes, a new day with a new mission yes, this is the case just to get something to bring and sometimes most of the times you can't have it full maybe half of it quarter of it whatever the amount you get you need to divide between parents sister niece and myself and when i say clean water not necessarily clean as we know it's clean relatively but it might be yellow smells bad salty and it might be dirty but this is all what you can get you need to drink it to survive and so this is the story of the water and exactly the story of the food if you get a handful of rice lentil flour this is gold so so sorry dr Yab, so, so if you if that's the the case with the with the water you had to drink 
I'm scared to ask. So there's no question about, you know, having a chance to take a shower. There's no question about having a chance to take a bath. It's just completely out of the question. Yeah, we have, we, we don't have water in the apartment. There is a washroom without water and a kitchen without water. So uh, you need to live in that situation. Minimal amount of water, you need to use it mainly to drink. If you yeah. are going to use it for something else, you need to to take out from the the amount that you 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 saved for drinking, like it is, it's only the same amount. So there, yeah, it's out of the question of to to ask about this luxurious things. Mm. <laughs> I would like to I would like to hear more about you know that type of personal experience because you will never hear that on the news, even the pro-Palestinian news. It's, it's too much of a personal detail for them to get into when, you know, the lives of people are being lost and buildings are being blown up. So I really appreciate that insight. I always, I think about these things. I actually wonder, you know, about individuals and circumstances. I think about uh, pregnant mothers. I think about the mentally challenged people. I think about the women with the menstrual cycles. Um, it's it's all challenges that are unique and we don't perhaps have a chance to, you know, reflect on their needs, but this gives us a chance for some personal reflection. Just a quick question. How is it that you managed to come out of Gaza? So, um, uh, this is because I have uh, Canadian nationality. Uh, I and see. My, my father was, uh, was so scared that I would be killed at some point. Mm. Really, he he was so keen uh, to push me outside Gaza. No. He he really was so happy that I came to visit him before the war. And now he is trying his best to push me out. So he texted the Canadian mission in Ramallah on my behalf. Mm. And he told them, like, if I'm a Canadian stuck in Gaza, what to do to get out? And he provided them with my number. They started to call me. I told them, I can't leave. I need my parents, my sister, my niece with me. Please make some pressure. They promised to make some pressure. And they called me maybe after 10 days. They told me, we tried, we failed. You need to get out of this by yourself. Sure. I told them, if I stay, could you make continue making pressure? Mm. Even, even with a little hope, they told me, yes, we will do. So this is when we got disconnected until day 43, I found my name at the borders and mm. by myself without my family. So because we don't have really official announcements there, we don't have really intact body that could announce on behalf of the, of the authorities of the borders, what are the regulations? All Gaza are rumors of if you have your name at the borders, and if you get your family with you, you fight for them at the borders, they allow them to pass with you. Then I told my father, then if that's the case, let's go all of us. I'm not going by myself. Mm. If we go, we go together or we come back together. So we went. And once we arrived to Rafah borders, uh, at the borders itself, we found the officer, the Palestinian officer, overwhelmed with lots of people asking him to process their passports because they want to pass quickly because they are afraid like drones are there they never leave the sky of gaza and they might attack the borders 
So mm. people they just want to leave. Their names are there at the borders. So he was overwhelmed. He shouted at us, everyone, please back. I will call you by your names. Nobody is here. I can't process anything while you are here. So this is when everyone went back except my father, including mm. myself. I went back with my mother and my family. So I was looking at my father, talking to him, talking to the officer, telling him, I am old, I'm sick, I can't go that distance. Then when you call me, I can't come back. Please process my right. passport and finish me. He told him, come to the office. They went to the office. They talked to, the, to, to each other. I was looking at them through the glass of the office. They are making some calls. I, I thought based on the rumors, they are talking to the other side, the Egyptian side, to take mm -hmm. the permission for them to pass with me. And they listed our, our names on a piece of paper. And my father and the officer started to smile. When they started to smile, I got really optimistic because nobody smiles in that situation. It's really tough enough not to smile. And he's mm. smiling. I thought it worked. Then he left the office and he called me. My father, he told me, Ihab, go with the officer. He has your passport. So mm. I felt it worked. I, I, I went with the officer because it must be me first because they are joining me. So mm. I went there. He took me outside of the hall with a one-way door that opens one way. If you go out, you can't come back. And mm. he went behind the desk. He stamped my passport. He gave it to me. Then he told me to go to the bus. I told him, where? He told me to Egypt. I told him, no. No, I have my family. I have my parents, my sister, my niece. I, I can't leave them behind. They are dependent on me. Because he was overwhelmed, he didn't answer me. I insisted. I didn't leave the hall. I told him, I'm not leaving until you solve this issue for me. He told me, I know. I talked to your father. I told him he was rejected from the other side. He can't pass the border. The borders, neither himself, nor your mother, nor your sister, nor your niece. Now, could you go to the bus? Then when I, I realized that I can't come back, I called him. I told him, why did you do that? Mm. He told me, uh, I will say it in Arabic, then I will translate it. He said, he, he told me in Arabic, Ya Baruch, shuf martak banatak fi Canada, ehna kbar inna Allah. Yes, go, go see your wife and your kids in Canada. We are old. Allah will protect us. Mm. And then in his way, he told my sister, now I am satisfied. I'm happy. He mm. has now I feel better. On the second day, once I arrived to Cairo, I received a call from Al-Awda Hospital in Al-Nusayrat camp to tell me that my father get murdered as a shaheed. Ya Rabbi. So, this is all. Ameen, Ya Rabbi. So, this is just to answer your question, how I did manage to leave Gaza. Ya Allah, I didn't expect uh, that answer. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad. I don't know uh, what to say to that. Um, I can't imagine the pain that you must have felt. But we can never call him dead. He's alive. He's alive by Allah. Yurzaqoon. He's the one rejoicing, uh, and we should be, we should be despairing, you know, yeah. because we haven't, 
That's we haven't met the standard yet. That's true. Allah be pleased with him. Ameen. Ya Allah. So, we've spoken about uh, some personal experience, uh, experiences of yours. What other experiences of yours, you know, really just at, at times, I know you, you never lost hope because otherwise you wouldn't be here today. You wouldn't be speaking with, with us today. You are a hopeful person. But I'm sure that there were times where you felt like all hope is lost and uh, you felt like going into despair but had to keep saving yourselves. Tell us a bit about those times. Uh, to be honest, it is not a losing of hope. Mm. Not at all. Uh, for, for, for two reasons. The first one, when you are with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you shouldn't lose hope. Mm. If he is with you, that's good enough. And I got to learn this from everyone around me in Gaza. Like people there, they have so much strength, faith, resilience. Mm. They, they, they know what they want to achieve. They are standing in their land, standing inside their houses. They don't want to leave because this is their land. This is their right. This is Al-Masjid mm. al This is the Holy Land. This is the story. The story is not only about me. It's far beyond myself. It's, it's this, not only myself, like everyone in Gaza thinking that way. It's, it's far beyond ourselves as people, as civilians. It's about the right to stand up for the truth, to defend the Holy Land, to defend your rights in the face of oppression. And that's why you could see people around you, like my situation wasn't, wasn't easy. Uh, sometimes we could spend, spend a few days without food or without water. And it's, it's, it's my father ran out of his medications and it's not safe. We kept moving from one place to another. I was about to be killed in so frequent situations. And yet my story, I consider it as a mild story. If you look at the stories there, when I was at the Shiva hospital, beyond every Shaheed, and everyone who got injured or murdered, long stories. And sometimes very beautiful stories of how people could, could resist, how people could survive this with their faith and their strength and their resilience when they come to the hospital, giving up his kids, like all of them are shuhada. And he just looking at them and telling you, I'm fine. I'm satisfied internally if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this is his choice, I should submit. I should submit. He decided to do this. He gave them to me and he is taking them now. So this is not exception. Really, it's not an exception. I got to see hundreds and hundreds of those people in the hospital, in our neighborhood, my relatives, my everyone around you tells you, that we are standing up for the truth. We mm. never leave. We never leave. We never feel weak. We never feel broken. On the opposite, we feel strong and we are sure that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will help us, will support us, will grant us victory. Maybe we are hungry. Yes, yeah, physically, I mean. we are tired, maybe. 
may be tired because we have no food. We have no, no real water, clean water. Mm. Maybe physically tired because over the 43 days, I couldn't remember two hours of sleep together. Like you could sleep one hour, half an hour here and there, but together two hours, it's, it's scary enough not to do that because most of those who were targeted and killed, they were killed while they are asleep. No. So really, we are tired, tired, physically tired, moving from one place to another and stressed. Maybe physically, yes. Internally, no. Internally, very strong. Internally, very proud of what we are doing. Internally, you know that you are close to him, subhanahu wa ta'ala. Mm. Internally, you, you feel that you are so strong. And if it is not with the situation that I just described to you, of how I left Gaza, I would love to stay. I would love. Why not? You live with people, you would love to stay with them and to learn from them day and night. I'm not talking about you or scholars or teachers. I'm talking about simple people, all of them, even kids, even kids. If I tell you the story about the owner of the bakery, the bakery in our neighborhood, who would provide people with the bread? And when the flour was, was available, even in shortage at the beginning of the war, he insisted to keep his bakery open. And they have targeted all the bakeries. Like it's, it's clear. You will be targeted. And your bakery will be destroyed. Not only this, you will be killed because you open it and you, you sit in it to sell people bread to eat. And when you ask him, why do you do that? His answer is, this is my participation. This is my participation on what's going on. This is my participation of how to help people, how to support them, how to keep them to stay in their land and to stay in their houses, not leaving. They want something to eat, right? I could provide this. I, I can do so many things, but this is something I can do. This is what I'm good at. And I will participate in what I'm good at. This is his participation. And then they destroyed his, his, his bakery and they killed him. But he is a shaheed and he is happy of what he, of, of what he did. So if, if, if you watch this, this man is not a Harvard graduate. This man is not complicated or sophisticated. This man is so sincere. This man loves his people, loves his land, loves Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa, loves Palestine, loves the Holy Land. He rejects Al-Batil, he rejects oppression. And he acted upon his understanding. And lots of people like him. So this kind of resilience makes you happy and eternally satisfied. And you never get weak because still your situation, as you could spot, is much better than others. And yet they are patient and they, they, they are happy and internally satisfied. There's Even a word... There's a word, Palestinian, uh, Palestinians have coined a word to describe what you've just described. Sumud. Sumud, right. Just exactly that. That's my understanding of Sumud. Is, is that correct? It is. It is exactly. Sumud means you resist and you stand up for the truth and you never get weak. Physically, they can kill us, but you can't kill my spirit. You can't kill my spirit. You could kill my, kill my body, but not my spirit. And that's why people are surviving this genocide. 
you wonder, like, it's a very extreme situation. How they could survive? That's the secret. Tell us, uh, Dr. Ihab, what was it like being a volunteer in, in Ashifa Hospital? I mean, you're a doctor by profession. You've also got expertise in other fields. Here you find yourself in Gaza and a crisis looms, a genocide begins, and you find yourself in one of the, uh, one of the targets of Israel. I don't know whether it was a target at the time that you were there, before you were there, after you left. Uh, tell us a bit about your time at Ashifa. So when I went there to Ashifa first, before talking about Ashifa, my role in Ashifa, the real heroes are those who are working in Ashifa, doctors yes. and nurses, not myself. Myself is just a volunteer. I went there to help them out, but really they are heroes. If you look at their discipline and their perseverance and insistence to achieve something, mm. to help people, it's great. So I went there, I volunteered my time in the NICU, which is the intensive care unit of the newborns, because this is my specialty. I'm a pediatrician and I'm a specialist in the intensive care unit of the newborns and the premature babies. And also uh, at the emergency unit. Emergency unit because they are very busy and they are in shortage, uh, so they need, they need help. So at the emergency unit, uh, and the intensive care unit, I divided my time between here and there. Uh, it wasn't really, if you compare it, as I just mentioned, with all what they did, big participation, I still see it small. Uh, we received, we used to receive hundreds, hundreds of patients and people who are injured and get murdered and were killed. Hundreds, sometimes thousands, every day in a Shifa hospital. It's overwhelming because of the lack of the resources. Many of the healthcare providers, they can't reach to Ashifa Hospital. They can't come because they live maybe in peripheries at Jabalia or Beit Hanun or, or some areas at the borders or even in southern part of Gaza. So that leave us with those who would live in a walking distance from Ashifa Hospital, which is difficult. You can't find all the resources. So you need to go there and help as much as you can. And when we talk about resources, it's not only human resources. The lack of the medical supplies was really disaster. Like by, by week two or three, starting of the war, we started to run out of the basic medical supplies. We don't have enough painkillers. We don't have antibiotics. We don't have maybe run out of syringes or goes or drugs of anesthesia to operate people who are injured. When you don't have these medical basic medical supplies. Once you receive a patient in the emergency unit and you stand in front of your patient, you can do nothing sometimes. You feel the pain in your heart as a doctor because you are, you are trained of how to help those people. You know how to do it, but you can't. You don't have enough resources in your hands to help and to support. Sometimes you watch them in your eyes, dying in front of your eyes because you have no help for them. If you don't have drugs for anesthesia to operate those patients, they will keep bleeding until they die. And that's the case for so many other, other cases. Also, those who we, we received at the emergency unit as people who got burned, burned from the white phosphorus. The white phosphorus, the prohibited weapon, 
So those patients, they come with so much pain. They cry out loud, out of pain. And you can't, you can't just help them. If you look at their hands or their chest or their legs, you could spot the bone. We could see the bone because muscles and veins and arteries and, and nerves, they were burned. And you just look at the bone immediately and they cry loudly and you can just help them. That is the situation. The situation when you are a doctor and it comes to the point that you need to decide who to help and who to leave. Why? Because you have only two hands and you have 10 patients, 10 who were injured and you need to help them all and you need to decide to which one you pay more attention and, and which one of them you need to leave because you can't help and maybe you feel as if you decide I will leave him, mostly he would die or she would die. It's, it's a very painful feeling in your heart and you are not alone in the emergency unit. You have relatives of those patients. They, they beg you. They, they, they tell you, please, please do something for our kid. We don't have anyone else other than him. Please do something. And you consciously, you need to decide not to do something for him because really, medically, ethically, you need to pay attention for somebody else. That's the situation. The situation when you need to decide serious decision. Maybe for you it would work because you are a doctor and you know what are the basis of this decision, but for, but for his mother, his father, his sister, his brother, how do you want them to understand the situation? Looking at, at one of their family, member of their family, dying slowly because of the lack of the resources and lack of the doctors, lack of the nurses, lack of the medical supplies. And once you are in a Shifa hospital, you keep running between one patient to another and between the ICU, the intensive care unit, the operative theater, the radiology department, so busy and overwhelming. And as I just said, behind each one of them, very long story of, of the way we, they were targeted and who were killed from their families, who were survived. Sometimes you receive the entire family as shuhada, all of them, or someone who survived out of the entire family as a kid or a senior. So that was the situation in a Shifa hospital until day 30, when we started to run out of electricity. And then we mm. decided to cut off the electricity from all departments except the vital ones. The vital ones, the emergency unit, intensive care unit of adults, intensive care unit of the newborns, radiology department and operative theater. And mm. every single other department works without electricity inside the hospital. Oh. By day 33, we run out of electricity at all. So we don't have electricity. And this is when even these five, the vital departments, the five of them, we run them without electricity. You could imagine people in the, in the intensive care unit. They are electricity dependent. They, they live on the mechanical ventilation where you could mm. provide them with oxygen. So yeah. without this mechanical ventilator, which is electricity uh, machine, dependent machine, oh, so mm. you run out of, of, the, of, the, of the basic need, which was oxygen, oxygen for this patient. When, so that was the situation until day 35. At the morning of day 35, 
when I went to, to, to Ashifa, again to volunteer, I didn't know the news because we don't have really mm. internet, we don't have electricity. Mm-mm-mm. I use when I go there to enter Ashifa Street to go to the main entrance of Ashifa Hospital. And it's usually noisy, like you could hear people. We have 60,000 refugees inside the hospital itself. Beside the nurses and the doctors and, and the staff and the patients. So it's a pretty crowdy with lots of noise because people are running behind something to eat or they want to bring water and they keep talking. And beside a shifa, it's, it's loud, like it's noisy. So when I, I went there, I felt this morning is different. It's different. There is something weird. Like I don't hear the noise. I don't hear people talking to each other. Uh, I didn't really realize until I entered Ashifa Street, I found it empty. And this is when I realized there is something wrong. Then they were targeted. They were shooting every single one moving around, every single object that moves around Ashifa Hospital. You can't move around Ashifa Hospital. This is when the night before they circled Ashifa Hospital from all sides. They have their snipers over the high residential towers and their drones, one kind of drones called quadcopter. The quadcopter drone is a kind of drone that would that fly at a very short distance and it works automatically. If, if the quadcopter uh, detects any moving object, uh, it will be targeted automatically. So we couldn't enter Ashifa. I tried to go from another entrance, which, which is the northern entrance. Also, I failed again. And this is my last time to be there. Uh, that was at day 35. I went very sad back to, to my family to tell them what I saw and the situation. And it was only a few hours until we realized that the confrontations between the occupation force and the resistance, it's there down the street at the corner of our neighborhood. And this is when we decided to move again. Uh, myself, my parents, my sister, my niece, we fled the apartment with our neighbors. To the relatives of our neighbors, they live far away, like not, not that much, maybe one kilometer from Ashifa Hospital, but we felt that's more safe. And then the next day I started to hear the sad news that they stormed Ashifa Hospital mm. from all the entrances. And I started to hear the news about my colleagues were killed. My colleagues as doctors, as nurses, I started to hear the names. And um, I got to know that they stormed all the departments. They went in every single corner in a Shifa hospital. They killed more than 200, among them patients, nurses, doctors, healthcare providers. They forced all the doctors to leave the intensive care unit. And all of the patients there, they, they passed away immediately. They were 20 and all of them just died. And also they forced all the doctors from the intensive care unit of the newborns, premature babies and the newborns inside incubators, inside the incubators because they are tiny, small, immature, and, and they are oxygen dependent and we run out of electricity. So we provide the oxygen manual. So if you kick me out while I am providing the oxygen, what do you expect the outcome? 
they, 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 they started to die one after all. I started to hear the names. Those patients, we got to know them. Over 43 days, you know those patients. You take care of them. And then you keep hearing their names passing away one after one. One after one. Passed away. Passed away. That one died. That one. And that was the situation in the next day after we left our neighborhood. So that was my experience, at least inside Ashifa Hospital. I have other few patients in Al-Nasser Hospital. This is where I got to go at the beginning of the war. B before I go and volunteer my time in Ashifa Hospital, mm -hmm. I, I went to Al-Nasser Hospital. And this is really okay. the hospital for kids. It's a hospital for kids with right. the intensive care unit there. That hospital today is not there. They yeah, destroyed the hospital totally. They forced all the doctors to leave the hospital forcefully. And patients there, one of the nurses who used to work there in the Nasser Hospital, uh, informed us that during the truce, you remember the truce of, of one week, that yeah. was the, 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 the temporary ceasefire. The humanitarian yeah. pause or something like that. Right. But during that pause, he went there to check on our patients because they mm. kicked all of us outside without the patients. Like patients, they stay in the hospital yeah. while no nurses, no doctors. So after a few days, maybe two weeks, he went there to check on the patients, premature newborn babies inside their incubators. And he found that those patients, part of their bodies, were eaten by, by dogs, they were flushed, and by animals. If you are a parent of those, those patients, and you see and you know that your kid was there, and it was attacked by dogs to eat part of their bodies, because dogs were hungry. So that was the situation other than Arantisi Hospital who got attacked too beside Al Nasser Hospital. And lots of my patients and nurses and doctors, my colleagues were killed. Rahmatullahi alayhim. Ameen. 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 That's just uh, how, are you, how are you dealing with, uh, with what you've experienced? I know that Palestinians are unique, and I know that you, you, you were built from a different material to the rest of us, and we love you for that. Your strength and your faith, your resilience has given us so much hope and inspiration. Um, you've changed our lives. So we thank you for that. But surely, you know, this is uh, challenging for you as a person, as a Muslim, as a servant of Allah. How do you manage to deal with all of this? I think that would, uh, would strengthen our insistence to explore the truth, to make it clear for everyone. Uh, the crime that we saw tells us, or at least tells me, because I, I, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, made me to, to, to pass the borders. So with, with, with an amana, with a responsibility. So my responsibility is to tell people the truth and to tell them all these details. Telling these details is not easy. Really, it's mm. painful. Mm. And I don't like to repeat it 
but I will keep mm. repeating it for all people to know. For all people to know these details from someone who was in there. And we saw those patients. We know the names of our colleagues, doctors and nurses who were killed. We knew mm. we know the names of our neighbors and kids who were killed. We know them. It's not exaggeration or underestimation that you could spot on the news. It's not. It's the truth. And I deal with that situation with more strength and more insistence. Because at the end of the day, you are responsible in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to tell people the truth. So mm. they so then when they know, they 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 should move, they should do something. But if you keep the truth just, just for yourself and you feel the pain, that doesn't help, doesn't open the borders for people to, to, to eat and drink and doesn't stop this war. SubhanAllah. Um, it's very difficult to, to get through this conversation without uh, you know allowing one's emotions to get the better of you. Uh, but I, I would like to know so much more about you know what life was like. I've seen videos of, of children, especially younger children, being so terrified um, because of what they hear all the time, bombs falling around them. And they are so young that I'm sure many of them, they don't actually comprehend what's happening. Like they don't understand that, okay, there's, a, there's, a, there's an attack from another place that stole our land and so forth. All they hear are the loud noises. And I'm sure that uh, people have faced fears that in my worst nightmares, I couldn't imagine. Can you tell us about the state of our children, our little boys and our little girls in Gaza and, and uh, share with us some of the pain that, that we can perhaps carry that away from you and that we can pray for them even more? I, I think that's that's that that's the case as you just explained. Fear is is a natural natural thing. Like you have it as as a human being, you could you 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 could be scared from something and you could fear to go through a difficult experience. And so our kids, not only our kids, even every single one there, mm. they it's it's a scary. It's the situation is scary. Like in spite of the strength of people there, it's it's a scary situation. Mm. Like I could explain to you the situation, and you could imagine the situation of the kids of what I saw. Like mm. my personal experience when I was there, when the night time starts, usually it's so scary because these attacks, explosions, air strikes starts heavily by the night time it's there day and night but really with a focus on the night time so uh, when you start the night time uh, like i would just explain the situation of one night and you could imagine what is the situation for the whole time the night of november 5th as i remember uh, they started uh, like they 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 started the attacks heavily attacks on the northwest part of Gaza because that was after the ground battle and they maybe decided to invade Gaza from that side. 
So uh, with severe attacks, air strikes, they were bombing everywhere in that neighborhood. And it's far from us. It is around four kilometers from our house. And yet we hear these explosions, very loud ones, as if they are just beside us. And with each one of them, our apartment shakes as if it is an earthquake, a very severe earthquake. And you feel the walls are collapsing over your head. And they started from like the beginning of the night time until midnight. Severe attacks, like almost every single one or two minutes, a huge explosion. And you could hear the noise outside, the noise of the glasses that's being broken, falling down from the residential towers to the ground, or those who are crying on the street, running towards the hospital for help or, 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 or to, go, to go there as, as refugees running out from this disaster. And you are at the middle of the night until midnight. And then they started to throw the white phosphorus heavily, heavily. And after that, they shift the target to, to the neighborhood just right beside us, which is Tal Hawa. My neighborhood was Arimat. So at the Tal Hawa, they started the same attacks. So that this was the noises and the sounds that we heard in a neighborhood that's four kilometers away from us. So what would be the situation when you hear these noises on just beside you and severe attacks, severe ones? And really, I remember we got so scared and we jumped from our beds, myself, my parents, my sister, my niece. We gathered at the middle of the house and really we were talking what to do, where to go. And I still remember out of these continuous attacks, nonstop strikes, air strikes. So we opened the door. And we started to run out of the apartment. We don't know where to go or what to do. Like we have no target. Just we need to be out of this apartment because we feel that the ceiling and the walls will be collapsed over our heads and we, we will be killed. We started to run outside. And once we arrived to the external entrance of, of, the, of the residential tower that we live in, we realized when we went outside just one meter, that really this area is the most dangerous one because now you are outside the apartment and you are exposed and these drones on the sky of Gaza, they never leave the sky of Gaza. If they detect any moving object, it will be targeted and you will be killed. And really it's risky, especially at the middle of the night. Most likely you will be targeted and killed. And this is when, when we decided to go back. Go back where? To the apartment? So most of people in, in our neighborhood did this and we did the same. We just stay at the door. You are not mm. in, you are not out, you know what to do and where to go. Oh. I still remember the discussion between myself and my, my father, talking to him when every single night after this night, we kept saying, oh, this night is the worst. Yes. This night is even worse than the previous one. That was the situation until I left Gaza. So what would be the situation of the kids when this is the experience of adults? When I receive them in the hospital, really scared. They don't know what to say, where to go. They don't really know why this amount of, of hate. Why do you kill my parents and you destroy yeah. everything? Why you target the bakery and the supermarket and my school? 
Why you target all those people? They are very nice, kind people, nice ones. Really, those kids, they don't realize the truth. They don't re realize what's going on. But I'm sure those kids will be the strong men and women of Gaza for the future. They are going through this experience, and now you are teaching them how to be stronger, how to have resilience, how to have patience. And uh, what inspirations they've been already. Some of them, subhanAllah, when they, when they speak, we don't hear children. We see children. We feel what we feel when we interact with children, but we hear the resistance. We hear liberation. We hear people more intelligent, more wise than most, if not all, of the political leaders of this world. We hear people of truth. We hear the future of the Ummah. And we understand full well why the Prophet وسلم, uh, taught us of uh, an Ummah or a portion of this Ummah that will remain upon the truth. And those who neglect them, they will never cause them any harm. And they will be persistent upon the truth till the end of time. And he was asked, where are they? And he said, they are around Baytul Maqdis. They are around Baytul Maqdis. So those children, subhanAllah, they, they are truly our heroes. Dr. Ihab, I promised you uh, an hour. I would like to keep my promise to the best of my ability. Uh, but I would love to continue to speak with you. Before we, before we you know, round off the conversation, I'm sure that you would love to share a message that has been driving you to till this particular point. You said that you gain your strength from from a pledge that you've taken with yourself, from a pledge that Allah allowed for you to come over the border, and you feel that this is an amana that you have to fulfill, and uh, that amana is that you will never stop speaking the truth. So this is a drive. This is a a burning sensation inside of yourself and I'm sure that this part of yourself came onto this particular podcast uh, this interview with a message in mind I would like you to share that message with us I feel uh, humble uh, between the hands of, of, of the owner of the bakery who I just talked about so it's not a message from me, it's a message from him to every single one outside of us. And really this message shaked me internally. This message, I consider it one of the most important things that I got to learn when I was there. The message is, do what, I'm, what you are good at. Participate. Do your effort. You see the truth. You know al-haqq. And you know that you need to stand up for the truth. And you need to know that you need to support al-haqq. And it is not like you will be asked to do something not in your hand. Do your best. That bakery helped with a loaf of bread. And when he was asked, his answer was, this is my participation. This is what I'm good at. Well, this is what I'm good at. Could I ask every single one hearing us today, 
go back and spot something you are good at and go ahead and participate participate with the truth against falsehood participate to support those people in gaza to support them to survive to stand up for their rights go ahead and help them whether at your political level financial level social level if you are good at media social media if you could protest sign a petition if you can do anything if you are creative creating videos or raising awareness you name it you spot something you are good at and you go ahead and participate and this is your responsibility your responsibility is to provide what you are good at and this is the lesson from that simple man who sacrificed his life in the sake of, 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 of his rights and the rights of people in Palestine and in Gaza with what? With something he is good at. This is, I think, the most important message. Jazakumullah khairan. Um, I hope, inshallah, that this message reaches everyone in the world because it is a message that has reinvigorated my soul with a drive to resist, with a drive to be part of the resistance, with a drive to want to help and to do my utmost. And I'm sure that anyone listening, anyone uh, watching, anyone who has a heart and is listening and watching would feel the same way, would feel that they want to go above and beyond. And uh, Alhamdulillah, we, we're also doing some financial aid, you know, collecting for Gaza. That's one effort. But I would like to, you know, encourage everyone to take inspiration from what you've said, Dr. Ihab, and for the sacrifices that you've made and that your family has made and that the people of Gaza has made to take your message seriously enough that we will all make the liberation struggle of Palestine and the liberation of Masjid al-Quds al-Mubarak, that we'll make that a part of our lives every day until its liberation and even beyond that because we still need to rebuild Gaza, we need to rebuild Palestine, we need to get people back their homes and their land and we look forward to the day that that happens and I hope inshallah that I can be by your side as we march through the gates of, of liberated Palestine and as we march into Masjid al-Aqsa al-Mubarak praying Sunnah Salahs next to one another in a liberated Masjid and breaking our fast together as well. Allah bless you. Jazakumullah khairan. Allah jazakum khairan. Barakatuh. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Assalamu alaikum.